0: Seth, your book, Fragile Neighborhoods, Repairing American Society, One Zip Code at a Time, was a fascinating read. You went around the country to find how communities and neighborhoods were overcoming certain challenges, any challenge from inequality to racism to crime to poverty to broken families to addiction and really anything in between. Um, So, when I was reading your book, one thing that really came to mind which I found interesting and I wanted to lead the conversation with this is, you know, you see people from all over the world wanting to come to the United States. They're trying to seek a better life. You know, our border seems pretty open right now. But when you look at it, we actually have division in politics. We have division in races. We have division in class. You know, there's a lot of division and it's hard for people to really understand who they can be believing right now. So it feels like there's a lot of like broken pieces. So my question to you is, how fragile is America really? And in your opinion, what's the most troubling part?
1: So I, I for a living work on fragile states, fragile societies. So first of all, when I talk about America, I often have foreign eyes. I've worked on 35 countries and when you describe people wanting to come to America, I mean, I see it all over the world. I mean, I've been in 75 or so countries. And um, and so that's a genuine sentiment. On the other hand, I would say people, when they arrive and even where they are, at times they are shocked by some of the types of problems we have. And I think uh, you have to understand America is materially an extremely wealthy country. There's only a few places, and they tend to be relatively small, like in Norway or Luxembourg, that actually are richer per person than we are. And uh, But on the other hand, we have a lot of what I would call social poverty. Uh, we have people who are alone, uh, people who are um, depressed, anxious, uh, feel alienated, uh, feel like they're cut off from opportunity. So so we're actually we're a huge country, we're vast, we're very diverse. and I think one of the most obvious things, which is why my book is called "Fragile Neighborhoods," is that how, how you're feeling America, how you're experiencing America, depends so much upon where you are. And just to give you an, an example, uh, I mean, lifespan is a crude barometer indicator of how well people are doing. and um, I mean, it's not perfect, but the United States, We have one. We have uh, our overall lifespan average has been stagnant or somewhat declining, um, and certainly has been diverging from other developed countries for forty years. So there's a lot of countries like a Portugal, which is much poorer than the United States, but they have much better health outcomes. So that's that's the that's the total. So you have to understand. Ask why is that? But more specifically, how well you're doing it in terms of lifespan. Depends upon where you live. There's a forty. There's an incredible forty-year gap, in and lifespan. And I just ask you. I mean, you're where um, um, I don't know your area very well, but if you're in a Baltimore, or if you're in a Detroit, or if you're in uh, different parts of the country, you can easily just walk around and see. There's a neighborhood in which things seem nice, uh, places secure, institutions are strong. Families are strong. And then you go to another neighborhood and you have none of the above. People are a lot more instability, a lot less economic opportunity. And in reality, they're experiencing life differently. Even if they're materially well off, they may be very isolated. There may be no social connection. So this is why neighborhood matters. So we have a 40-year gap based upon where you live. And I would say a more typical gap is 20. And that number alone is telling us a lot about how well places are doing and where we are matters so much for how we're experiencing the country.
0: Yeah, that's actually really important because I think there's a lot of folks listening who know about that experience where within a span of five minutes, maybe even a, you know, a couple miles, miles uh, separates a community that's doing well versus a community that's struggling. And in yes. those five, 10 miles, uh, as you said, there are people that are living, you know, 20, 30, 40 years longer. And some of that definitely has to do with resources and really a lot of this has to do with some of the food that we eat. You know, you had mentioned like just in general, Americans' life, you know, lifespan is declining uh versus some other European countries. I would imagine some of that has to do with the amount of processed food, which is a completely separate subject, but kind of also ties into this conversation because at a neighborhood level, even if you think about the grocery stores that are available in one community versus another. That tells you a lot about the resources that are being allocated there as well. So there's so much uh, to think about in terms of the layer, the layers, and it is something that most of us listening have visually seen ourselves. Um, so to your point, you know, one of the comments was around how the U.S. is one of the wealthiest countries in the world, um, but with so much of society seemingly crumbling, I mean and the fact that you've gone to more than 70 countries what's your take on how we look in the eyes of other countries i mean again it's like this just
1: two different dimensions people want to come here because we have the rule of law mm. uh our instit- our institutions like that work for the most part very well there are imperfections there are um inequalities in how that works but compared to like a nigeria in Nigeria, where I go to, somewhat regularly, you have to w- worry uh, when you take a highway between cities. Am I going to be kidnapped? You don't go in the nighttime. You go at certain times of day. Some roads you avoid. Uh, trains have been attacked, and uh, I mean, there's low-level violence in many parts of the country. It's completely different if you're coming from one of these countries, and there's dozens of countries that are insta- unstable, economically uh, stagnant. I mean, even gang violence like in Central America, uh, drug cartels in Mexico, For we, we look relatively, we look pretty good. There's more jobs. Uh, there's, for the most part, more stability. And everybody assumes they're going to wind up up in the better places. Mm-hmm. They may be shocked by our problems, but they mostly assume those problems aren't going to happen to me. I'm going to get to this country and I'm going to do well. And I think the immigrant experience... Is very, is very diverse. And um, I mean, you could be, if you come, we talk about social poverty, social poverty is different than material poverty. If you're in a strong immigrant community, you can have very rich relationships, very strong support structures, and everyone is helping everyone lift themselves up and do better. And if you're like in that situation, uh, you're somewhat protected if you go to the right part of America. You come with a, with enough education and some, some resources. Uh, I think you can avoid these problems. But at the same time, people look at America and they see our political fights. They see our gun violence. They see, um, I don't think the the drug overdoses are so advertised. For me, they're just one of the most shocking things about the country. So many people dying, it doesn't make the newspapers. But it's just shocking to see the scale of the problem. Um, And we could go through all these problems, things like depression and loneliness. People don't imagine that's going to happen to them. I would just say it's a trade-off. People want a certain amount of rule of law and stability and economic opportunity. And they never assume that they're going to be one of the lonely ones, isolated ones, one of the possible, uh, might end up in one of these bad, worse neighborhoods. and. and so they think it's not going to happen to them. So they they can they can look down on America and still want to go there at the same time. So I think it's a complicated yeah. picture for people. And I'd say the movies, the movies and everything, I mean they just make people they entice people and enough that that uh yeah, and the whatever the, the news and everything. Yes, it's it's very enticing and people don't look at the downside.
0: Yeah, I can understand that. And it's somewhat sad if you think about it because. There's something to be said about the fact that our prosperity as a nation, and maybe I'll use prosperity with quotes around it. um, Material prosperity. Material prosperity as a nation has done very little in terms of actually helping our overall well-being. And I think that there's something to be said about that.
1: I mean, again, everything is so relative in our country. Um, I think... I mean, I, I argue that the big change in America in the last two generations is we basically went from a country where place mattered and every place had institutions that supported us to basically a society based on networks. And if mm. you're in the right network, you get to the, you get help to make sure you get into the right college. You get a better network in college. You get into some network after college. If you're on that track, yeah. you get into the right organization. I mean, you're doing well, and so there's a there's a class of people, and there's a there's there's a way to get into that class if you can um, have enough of a network and pass pass the right test, so to speak. The problem is, what about a lot of a lot of other people? A lot of other people they don't have. They're in places where there's none of those networks that can help them. Uh, they're um, they may have networks, and networks are not helpful. The networks may be negative. They may be uh, giving the wrong lessons or uh, and or constraining you in different ways. And so I think I think we have great inequality, but the greatest inequality is not material. It's our social relationships or social capital or social networks. And uh I think some of us, especially if you live in some of the worst places, this what we call, what I call fragile, or you might call distressed, especially if you have material and social poverty together. You're like if you're a, a youth or a kid, you're growing up with like a weight on your shoulder, and you could climb out of there, but uh, you're being held back by a lot of what you're experiencing every day, and um, and we have to we have to consider. I mean, I mean, if we want to ensure a country opportunity for everybody, I do believe the only way to do that is to ensure everyone lives in a flourishing neighborhood, and that's a pretty good equal starting point for everybody.
0: Yeah, and that uh, that reminds me that this classic phrase that it's not what you know, it's who you know, and that can take you places. But to your point, you know, when so many people feel um like they're out of the loop, I mean, you got to start asking yourself like, how many of us are actually a part of a real community? How many of us are actually part of an ecosystem where everyone feels like they're committed to the cause? How many of us are part of a community where? You know the the progress is being made how many of us truly feel supported and can feel comfortable asking for help or asking for like a sense of belonging i mean these are questions that are pretty deep but i think um they they hit on what a lot of people might be feeling because they feel out of place out out of the loop just simply on you know where they are literally physically located and your comments also remind me of a piece of your book where you, you really highlight a couple of examples. And this is for anyone who wants to buy the book. They can, you know, look this up. But basically, if you look at history and you know, a lot of us are taught about certain individual acts or certain individual people in different parts of our history. But the reality is behind the scenes, there's a very high chance that there was collaboration. There were groups, there were organizations that were helping that one individual. And so kind of a a reminder that you know we live in an era where you know that individual act gets the headline but behind the scenes there's a network there's a group there's collaboration that's taking place and that's the type of stuff that's required to maybe fix some of these fragile neighborhoods and areas moving forward
1: uh, i mean i'm a big believer in the market i'm a big believer in uh competition capitalism but i also know that people who have come from strong families, strong neighborhoods, strong social networks, um, are more likely to thrive, more likely to, to succeed. I mean, you you can see it in the data. I talked about the life differences. You can talk about social mobility. You could talk about the health of people and, uh, and their access to jobs. You can just look at a lot of things. Uh, but I also can speak I mean, I can speak from personal experience. I live in a very flourishing neighborhood with lots of relationships. I may not be friends with a lot of people, but I know hundreds of people in my neighborhood. Well, first thing is you walk down the street and you have this sense of joy. You have the sense that you feel there's a security blanket there. If I have a need for something, uh, I know I know I can knock on a door or I know where to go. I mean, I can speak, I have a, I have a son, and my uh, her, his older his older sister uh, dropped him once, uh, right in front of my house, coming out of the car. He was probably about two years old. His chin fell on the cement. Mm. I want you to think about that bleeding. Ooh. Parents are both there. My wife and I totally like. What do we do? And my wife's immediate reaction: she's a bit faster than I in an emergency. Picked him up and took off down the street. And I'm like, where did she go? And what's wrong with my son? And what do we do? She went to the closest nurse. And she knew mm-hmm. the closest nurse was a couple blocks away. And it turns out because of we just know a lot of people, we probably know five, six, seven, eight nurses within, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes walking of where I am right now. And so I asked people, if you had that emergency, or I'm thinking this past week, uh, my uh My uh, mother-in-law was coming out of the hospital, wasn't well. My wife took off to take care of her mother-in-law and I needed help getting my kids back and forth to school because I was ever, I had plans and I had whatever, I had another podcast or I had a meeting or something like that. And immediately I had four different neighbors in the two mornings, two afternoons, taking care of my kids, picking them up, taking them after school. and, um, And my life was so much easier and uh an app can't solve these problems and and i would say that we we're, we're taught not only to be very individualistic especially for those who are materially well off we're taught to not show our vulnerabilities to people we're sh- we're taught that we should be self-reliant we're taught to ne- never do anything that makes us look bad and i would say that's bad advice and that that's like a norm and we almost are teaching our kids uh, don't take risks, don't do things that make you look bad. Let's try to be over protective of our kids, over protective of ourselves and uh and I understand why people wanna look good, but it really helps to have relationships have a I i mean my whole life is is very individualistic. the types of choices I made yet I live in a place where we have a sense of interdependency. We help each other, somebody needs something i I get involved. I'm on the board of some local nonprofit. I'm involved with another association, and the key thing is people have people just have a norm, a, a regular habit that we're here. We're here to be pleasant to each other. We're here to be helpful. We're here to if people are people are worried about. I'll just give you one more example. I'm on the WhatsApp group, several WhatsApp groups from my neighborhood, and some some kid about 22, 23 had not come home for 24 hours. And boom, people said, let's form a shirts party. This happened on Monday. I was in Denver on Monday. And I'm watching my my phone. And I says, I'm going to join this WhatsApp group. I'm going to see what's going on. So they said, we're meeting at 4 p.m. A bunch of people got onto the WhatsApp group, whatever. I don't know how many, 15, 20 people. They went around all organizing by this WhatsApp group in an hour. They they had some idea. People were saying he's probably on one of these paths in the woods near where we live. Everybody spread out. And they found them, like in an hour, an hour and a half. And then they're they're organizing, well, who needs to pick up? How do you get home? And there it is. It's like neighborhood mobilization on very short notice to solve a problem. And that's like a very simple example of what happens when you live in a community, a community of care and interdependence. And I just think people's lives are better. And it's it's best not to think we're alone and not to think we need to do everything ourselves
0: yeah that's a very powerful example, and it's the complete opposite of the feeling that someone in a fragile neighborhood has where there is stress, there's you know mistrust, there's some frustration and that sense of security that you felt or feel uh that that lack that's lacking in the in the fragile neighborhoods and so it's a complete opposite picture of what a lot of folks are living with um and it really makes you think about like okay if You know, you're in a fragile neighborhood and there's so much stress and frustration and mistrust. Like how healthy is that for anyone? That's that's also another topic. But if you look at certain minority groups, you know, they are, let's say, 10 times more likely to be living in poor neighborhoods and they've been living in poor neighborhoods for multiple generations. And it's really hard to get out of high poverty neighborhoods. You kind of talked about it earlier, like some people can, but the reality is that there's a lot on people's shoulders for them to actually lift up and get out in terms of getting out of a social or economic you know poverty lifestyle and that's i mean i'd be curious like why do you think the government is ignoring so many of our neighborhoods i mean what how can there be something passed where a hundred billion dollars goes to our own cities? Can that just come out of a defense budget? Like, I'm curious, <laughs> how can a leader step up? How, you know, what approach can actually be considered right now? Because these are high-stake situations. You know, fixing American societies is a high-stake situation, and the anger and the bitterness that might be boiling up right now in those communities—you, who's to say when that explodes? I mean. There's a lot going on, so I'd be curious your thoughts on all that.
1: Yeah, yeah I, I'll give a few um, I'll give a few comments on that. So first, I mean I'm not sure the trade-off is between our defense and our domestic because it's a it is a dangerous world. so uh, we should always keep in mind that the world is getting increasingly dangerous and and uh, and so I I think the trade-off is whether we address problems one by one or we address problems place by place. I've worked in a lot of countries, and there has been hundreds of billions of dollars of foreign aid given to these countries, and there's successes and there's failures. And it, I think it's the same in the United States. The successes have been programs that are run at the individual level, healthcare, the healthcare of people in Africa, for example. Aid has done an incredible job improving the health of people, vaccinations. Dealing with AIDS, other health issues, it is something that aid does very well, helping individuals. On the other hand, aid to help governments work better or countries work better, not a lot of track record. Some countries do better, that's because they themselves do better, not because of aid. So uh, uh, when we when government acts, government generally is it thinks it thinks better in individualistic terms. It thinks not so well in in place-based terms. And I would argue that there's some things we could do for government to be more successful dealing with places. Right now, think about how government is structured and how we would spend that money you talk about. We would put it into the housing department. We would put it into the healthcare. We would put it into schools. But what happens if the problem is not any one of these? The problem is something with the social dynamics of a place. And that, and that this is not an easy problem for the government to, to fix, but there are some things government could do. First of all, government could, um, be structured not around departments. It could be structured around places, around neighborhoods with neighborhood based teams that would be basically evaluated on how good places did instead of evaluated on how many housing units were built or how many school seats were filled or how many permits were issued. Right now, government is basically about numbers, units, silos, and increasing. And I argue that that's, that's the wrong way to measure the success of government and government should be structured differently. That would be one thing. A second thing is government could instead think of our landscape. Right now, it it zones, it plans, it structures our landscape so that we all live in houses, And it it tries to make nice roads and tries to encourage nice houses, and it doesn't create like good places. What would happen if our physical landscape was designed around neighborhoods? And each of those neighborhoods had places to meet, had local institutions, had community schools. So there are things that government could do to structure our landscape and then structure its own institutions and structure the way it spent money and structure the way it was organized such that its main goal was to promote flourishing neighborhoods instead of more of this unit more of that unit and thinking in a really big scope with what we might call as vertical indicators one basically looking at single numbers to measure what we're doing how about looking at a lot of place numbers and adding them up and focused on the flourish how flourishing each place is so i think I think government is extremely important for the challenge we have about neighborhoods. But I think government, as it currently functions, will have a very hard time doing a good job improving places.
0: Yeah, Yeah, because basically they should transform to create stronger social systems. Um, It should
1: be designed to encourage social systems. Yes. I mean, obviously, I don't want to say homelessness isn't a problem. I don't want to say hunger isn't a problem. For sure, these are problems and they are short-term problems that need to be addressed. But if we don't go upstream and strengthen the social, this, this great social support system that we live in or that we should live in, or that all of human history was built around these local place-based communities. I mean, I mean, just this, this is the organic way people develop societies throughout human history, wasn't always perfect. Maybe there was too much conformity, uh, marginalized some people. There might have been discrimination. It wasn't perfect, but what it did do was provide social structure, social system, a lot of social institutions, businesses, schools, associations, places to worship, lots of things going on locally. And we all, we we knew each other and we were in this together. And that's been lost. And I don't think we can deal with these many many social problems and all the anxiety and all the depression and all the the drug problems and what have you if pe- everyone is living in some 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 social system that is thriving and helping them thrive
0: yeah no that makes sense and to tie into that comment you just made i mean according to one study in your book the portion of americans that are reporting that they have quote unquote no close friends has quadrupled since 1990. So it goes back to the point of how people feel like they're less of a society, less of a community, less of a network. And then add to that, um, about 25% of Americans aged 18 years or older are now medicated for depression or anxiety. The the numbers
1: are incredible. The numbers are incredible.
0: Yeah. And so suicide rates are going up. People are depressed. People are you know, have anxiety. People on medication, and so there's this disconnect from society, and um, there might be a disconnect based on the fact that you know people living in communities have been told that there's going to be change, and change tends to take a long time. And so, I'd be curious what you would say to the people uh, who are in communities who are done trying to transform their transform their community because just you know change is taking too long, and some of the changes you proposed, I mean if that goes into effect, I mean, you're probably looking at another 20 years, right, before that that really gets implemented. So what would you say to the people who might be really disconnected from trying to transform their own community at this point? I mean, I, I think, again, people don't want
1: things done to them. To the extent that, I mean, think about how life used to be. However, people are much less wealthy, but they belong to some local networks, some local associations. They might have been informal. They might not have been formal. But if you look at the Tocqueville's view of America almost 200 years ago, there was all this abundance of local institutions, associations. Um, and we had something like that, not the same form as the Tocqueville saw up until the sixties. And so people are a members, member of something. Um, and they have. A chance that they can—they feel a sense of agency or ownership. Yeah. It, they have a stake in their place, and they feel that like they can do something. And what we do now is—is is those institutions, associations have thinned or disappeared. Some places still have them, but, and, but these are more exceptions than the rule. And—and and it's not just about someone from outside coming in and saying, "We're going to lift you up." That's doing to people. We need to nurture. This is why the social dynamics matter so much. Not only is it about lifting people up, it's about giving them agency, empowering them. And empowerment is not an individual thing. Yes, it's about individuals doing things. You're empowered because you're in a network. You're empowered because you have these social ties, these institutions you can leverage. Sometimes you create your own. But even an individual one, there's a network behind it. There's partners behind it. And to the extent that we have lots of those things going on and a lot of people able to do something, people's perception of change is different. People will shape the change. People will participate in the change. People will volunteer for the change. And I mean, that's the kind of pathway we need to think about. We just can't say government or philanthropy or some nonprofit is going to come in and give you something. And then somehow you'll be better. I don't think that's that's not change. I mean, obviously, if I need a place to live, I might need someone to give me something. But if you really want to change a neighborhood, part of it is finding those leaders, encouraging the emergence of leaders, encouraging, catalyzing the emergence of action, cooperation, institutions. You are you want to catalyze the emergence, some sort of organic emergence of things. And there's ways to do that. And if I'm an individual in the neighborhood, I don't want to wait. I want to say, can I find two or three people around here that I can do something? Or do I want to look for a local organization I can volunteer for? Or if I, or can I? I'm thinking of my neighbor down the street from me. She, she goes every week and knocks on the door of people who live alone. And her mother lives in the neighborhood, and she's alone. That might be the starting point for her. I don't know what started her. But I see her walking up and down the street, just banging on doors. She knows who's alone. How many houses? How frequently? I can't tell you. But she I see her in front of my house walking along the streets. And so there's things that we can do. There's things that we can team up with people to do. We can find other associations. Um, so we don't want to wait. But when things are going to be done, the best thing is, is that people, some sort of activity, some sort of uh, change emerges from a place. Uh, it ca- might be catalyzed from outside, but we want it to emerge and be led in some form by what is going on. It might be a partnership. You might add outside resources, outside capacity, outside leadership, but you want the local people to be engaged. They're not having things be done to them. Too many things in our country are being done to people and places. And that's, I think, one reason why there's so much alienation and anger.
0: I love that. That's really deep and thorough. And um, it highlights a portion of your book where you talk about building trust by building together. And if you're going to yes. show up in a community, you know, instead of asking people to trust you, now you should really start asking people to hold you accountable. So if you're a community leader, you want to build from within, you want to build together, ask them to hold you accountable, right? So may, the way you're going to hold yourself accountable is if you show up over and over and over again, if you actually take the time to hear what the residents are saying, if you actually as you mentioned, maybe start identifying two or three people in the community that can be serving as gatekeepers to get you in front of more people. And that's how you build more trust within the fellow residents that live in that particular community. And so it really starts very small. It really starts, you know, very, you know, locally. And then from there can really grow as opposed to saying, you know, we're an organization, we're going to come in here and just trust trust what we do. But unless you're identifying local leaders, Unless you're supporting local businesses, unless you're really in the community, unless you're trying to even showcase the culture of the community, um, really, I mean, you're probably just going to fall on deaf ears. I, I mean, you're referring to
1: um, an example I give: Chris Lambert um, in Detroit and his organization, Life Remodeled. I mean, I I was very fortunate to find these five great organizations. So he's in Detroit. Um, he's doing uh, great work. He's beautifying neighborhoods. He's cleaning up streets. He's uh, helping people repair houses, roofs, boilers. And if you know Detroit, I mean, if if you haven't been to Detroit, it's worth just going to Detroit and driving around. What a landscape. It's like a post-conflict landscape. Some neighborhoods have disappeared. Some neighborhoods' houses are crumbling. The population is down 60 65% from its peak. And that means that large chunks of what was Detroit is no longer there. And it's it's just something to say. So he's in a neighborhood and he was given an an opportunity to take over the most important building in the neighborhood of middle school because the student population shrunk and a lot of schools have fallen into disrepair. The city basically said, the education authorities said, here, you take over this building. You have a good plan, a plan to build a neighborhood hub, and this will be great for this neighborhood. Well, He discovered that beautifying streets and uh, repairing houses, people loved that. He was coming, doing something for them and leaving. But here he was going to set up shop. He had a 50-year agreement, and he was going to be their neighbor. And moreover, he's a white guy, and this is a black neighborhood. And is he going to come and push us out? Or is other white people going to come and push us out? And a lot of anger resulted. He couldn't imagine. He thought he was just doing a good thing. He was going to bring organizations, create a hub, create opportunity, bring in healthcare, care, uh, after-school clubs, loads of things for people. And there was just unhappiness with him. And he had to take a step back and learn some painful lessons. And uh, what emerged from this is he had to learn what it meant to build a relationship, not just a, a thin relationship where he's giving things to people, but a, a thick relationship where we're partnering and 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 again, we're not going to solve our divisions and our polarization by just sitting around and talking. And what he's learned over and over again through volunteers, through this work, and through other things is people build trust by doing things for each other, by showing doing things with each other, for each other, and um, showing up over and over again and being judged by performance. So what he had to do to build trust is that he had to literally go street by street. Ah, uh, break bread with people. Develop more personal relationships. Uh, not hold big meetings. Big meetings are easy to get people to to be angry. To talk talk in front of their neighbors about how angry they are. And might might also attract people from elsewhere. So he went around. He broke bread. He bro- he sat down, and had meals with people. Then he identified people who are like the leaders in different parts of the neighborhood. Different areas have different leaders. Uh, built their trust. Listen to them. Incorporate their ideas. Uh, Eventually, he formed two advisory councils that he holds himself accountable to. One is these local leaders and one is students, because a lot of what he does is for students and he wants students input. And and then he actually had to change what his organization was made up of, of who who was staffing this organization and this hub. And instead of instead of what he had, he he basically, he he basically was started to recruit people from the neighborhood or neighboring neighborhoods so that. In the end was he had an institution and institutions are hugely important for promoting change. His institution was very locally based in terms of its people, in terms of who it was accountable to, in terms of how it designed its programming. And um, even its name was given by uh, something called Durfee Innovation um, uh, Center is, is the name they gave to this hub. And that is the name that the students gave to him. So basically, he he um, he basically uh, became a part of the neighborhood in this gradual process of change. And then people trust him much more readily. And um, and it's just it's a great lesson that we don't have trust in America. Part of it is we're not practicing working with other people anymore. Uh, We're more likely to be distant from our institutions, distant from our neighbors, Trust is something you learn by actually being in relationships, being in institutions, working with each other. And if you're going to a neighborhood to try to do something, you got to learn what it means to build that trust and those relationships, and find ways for people to really believe in what you do. And then you got to prove yourself over and over and over again.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's a powerful example. He's Chris doing great work, and one of the keys there is you know it you're the way you approach a community needs to be tailored to that community as opposed to thinking that, you know, for example, Chris, right? He's having success now in Detroit after a couple of lessons. It probably would be a mistake for Chris to think that he can just pick up and take that same mindset in terms of like what worked there to, you know, a different part of the country that's struggling. Uh, I guess the mindset would be that it needs to be tailored to that area. So, you know, social repair in Detroit is very different than social repair in West Virginia, for example, where, you know, the problems there are different. They're mostly so different. You know, so different. And, this
1: is a. Yeah. I mean, so, this is the vast country, rural versus urban. I mean, we haven't talked about like uh, Native American reservations or I mean, the right. South versus the Midwest. San Diego versus uh Detroit. What a diverse country we live in.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know, something that you had mentioned earlier um was your children. And uh, you know, I'm I'm also uh, a dad now too. And so family is really important.
1: How old how old are your children?
0: One kid, he's 19 months old.
1: <laughs> wow. I mean I mean, what do you what do you see every day? That child needs unconditional love. I mean, yeah. testing you always always in the moment there's not love and stability there. I mean, that kid feels it. I'm just telling you. I mean, that's that's the key to relationships right there.
0: Yeah. You know, he's also taught me a lot, too, in terms of letting go. And watching him, you just see just the most natural behaviors. At this point, you know, he hasn't been institutionalized. He doesn't have real, like, other people's thoughts in his heads. He's just going off of feeling and vibe and just going off of what makes him happy and so I just look at that sometimes and I'm like that's a lesson for adults too of just like let go of you know whatever preconceived thoughts you have I think the word should be eliminated you know sometimes I caught myself you know saying oh you should do this you should do that and then like five seconds later I'm like wait we need to eliminate the word should should is creating so much <laughs> pressure um because at the end of the day like let these let this soul blossom so anyway we could talk about family you know, from that perspective, you know, another the, time. The but... one
1: exception I would say is uh, you should not touch the knife or something like that for that age. I yeah. mean, please, please, uh, the safety, the safety part, I, I would have boundaries. That's the one thing that scares me the most every day. True. But otherwise, yeah. I mean, you know, you know, um, I encourage it's it's we over protect our kids. And if you're thinking of your child, your child is learning to walk learning to yeah. talk and making a lot of mistakes along the way. Yeah. And when they get a little older, uh, my oldest is 11 and that's still not so old. And when they get older, you need them to get out there onto the neighborhood. And if you feel com- confident in your neighborhood, you're going to be confident in letting your kids get out there and hopefully they have friends and hopefully they're going to wander a little bit and they need to learn to take care of themselves. They need to learn to make mistakes and uh, and it's really important to like let them grow in that sense. Um, and if you if you're friends with neighbors, you'll have more confidence for that. I mean, I mean, growing up is step by step learning, and 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 we don't want to be overprotective. But if you know your neighborhood well, it really helps you let your kids grow organically. I will tell you.
0: Yeah, and again, I think it's a privilege and a luxury to be able to live in that type of scenario where. It does feel like you know you're overprotective, and they have that kind of community where they can go out and, you know, learn and make some mistakes, but not ones that are too drastic because on the other hand, um there are so many situations where the next generation is neglected. when you think about how families are being torn apart, whether it's just you know divorce, whether it's drugs, whether it's you know violence, poverty, all the different struggles that you can think about. So families are kind of being torn apart. I think that as a result of that, there's a lot of pressure in the school system where pressure is put on teachers to also be parents, which I think is unfair. And so I, I really think that, you know, we need to have a better way of supporting our children and supporting the students. And because it feels like the next generation is might be like lost right now.
1: I feel a lot of people are lost. And I, and I, uh, I think part of it is they're not in institutions and they're not, they're not like learning. Uh, I mean, when, when you're a part of something, you have the sense of agency. You have the sense that you can uh, you can contribute, you can do things. I mean, you're learning to compromise. You're learning to cooperate. You're learning to trust. You're learning. I mean, we all need to make mistakes in relationships. There's this whole thing in America about people are afraid to Afraid to date, it seems to me. I mean, it's a bit shocking. And my, and when I grew up, I uh, mean, I mean, the, I mean, the pe- people, people, if anything, could have dated less. There was like everything; it was nonstop. Everything in terms of it was like the teenage life that uh, and the young life that uh, we see in the movies. But uh, you, you know, you see things. I just think people are risk averse, and part of it is they're not being socialized to spend time with each other. And it's so important that we learn to spend time with each other. And again, neighborhoods make that possible. And we wanna be in person with people. As as we as I mean, talked before about the reduction in friends. I mean, I mean, our neighbors are not always our friends, but our neighbors are, again, relationships. And we often have organizations or informal things we do with each other. And there's a give and take. Someone comes over and they need flour. I mean that happens in my neighborhood it's not just a movie um or we have we have some need and we we need butter or whatever it is that my wife wants and we're going asking across the street and um I mean this is part of of practicing relationships the more we practice it just day in and day out I think the stronger we will be and then the more things we do with relationships from from dating to uh family to um Building organizations that help our place. I mean, all of this. I mean, I think it's healthy for us. It's healthy for our neighbors. It's healthy for our society. I mean, otherwise, we're just on the technology and we're just angry about politics. And that's not. That's not great. I mean, that's not great. Why should we be so depressed about everything? We should look for ways that we can we can make a real contribution where we are. Yeah,
0: that's why I'm putting the onus back on parents, Um, because you know. There are studies that show that kids who are raised in a household with both parents, they're going to be better off from an education perspective, an income perspective, a social mobility perspective, even if it's one parent. But if kids are left without their biological parents, then obviously, you know, they're probably going to be more inclined to commit crime or have behavioral issues, maybe emotional issues. And What's concerning to me personally is that it because I have a son is that it's the boys that typically start to act out in society. They're the ones who are antisocial in terms of being aggressive, in terms of being disruptive, in terms of becoming bullies and showing defiance. And so, like the absence of a stable father or a stable mother and father figure, like you lose role models and it's really impacting the next generation and there, there could be adverse consequences that we would all have to deal with in society. So it's not just like the family dealing with it. It's like everyone deals with it because families are broken right now.
1: For sure. I mean, every, every, um, every situation is different. I mean, my parents uh, got divorced and, um, and, uh, and they might've had a very good reason for being divorced. So every situation is different. And, um, If uh, someone is abusive or someone is just not the right fit, uh, there are many situations where things could be better. Uh, But of course, I would say the data is very clear that on average, people are happier if they're married. The data is very clear that children have much better outcomes if their parents stay together and if their father is there on a regular day in, day out basis. Uh, The data is even very clear that that's good for adults. And this information, is uh, especially true for boys and men. Boys do much worse when the family situation is unstable, and men do worse when they're not in a marriage and a close relationship. And it doesn't always have to be marriage, but it has to be that strong relationship, permanent relationship, that operates like a marriage, even if you've never had that piece of paper signed. And uh, the the thing that's not good for kids uh, particularly is is family instability. And uh, I mean, I write about it that, um, uh, I mean, there are cases where it might be better, but in general, single parent households, there's less time for the kids. There's less discipline for the kids. There's less money for the kids. There's a lot of things that are different and uh, and kids are worse off. And it's, I mean, even inequality, we think of inequality in our society. Inequality is tremendously related to family situations. So uh, I I would I mean again, every situation is different, but to the extent that 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 people are in relationships and there are children, I would urge people to uh, double up in terms of their commitment to their family, to their kids. And um if you if you get married and you stay married and you and you are the parent your kids need every day. Uh, I think longer term, you will be better off, and your kids will be better off. And I looked. I looked at um, one organization in particular, a uh, communio that was. That's all they did. They tried to encourage uh, people to be married to ensure that kids turned out well. And I looked at another organization that was basically looking at situations where there wasn't a stable family, and kids were doing very bad at school. The worst kids in Baltimore, bottom twenty five percent. And then they sought to create a family-like structure around those kids. And the key thing was unconditional love, 10 years, 24-7, 3 a.m. in the morning, you need help. Uh, there's a security problem on your street. You don't have food. You need help with homework. You need help finding uh, uh, with your application to college. And they are transformative in the results for the kids because those kids, they everyone needs unconditional love. And and unconditional love is not only something we give them, but strong institutions, strong family, strong marriage family, and then if not, they are some sort of strong. This is volunteers, uh, like some sort of interfamily network that supports the kids. I mean, without that, kids are not going to thrive, and a lot, a lot of our problems are only going to get worse. And that's that's so essential.
0: Yeah. And that's an interesting perspective shift because you mentioned the bottom twenty five percent of that. The kids in that neighborhood are getting that twenty four seven support, whereas in a lot of situations, people tend to pick on the top twenty five percent and yes, exactly excel. It's like actually go with the bottom twenty five percent, and that's even more grassroots in terms of you know you develop them. Um, and I mean, if you think about it, I mean, there's like there's an ROI to this investment to the poorer communities and that bottom 25% there's trillions of dollars of economic activity that is untapped and if we pay attention and actually put our investment there it could be good for society combine that with the fact that maybe you know in terms of a, an op, a solution for people who feel lost right now and who you know, maybe feeling like they don't have that sense of like a healthy relationship around them is, you know, we see a decline in the people who are religious and going to places of worship. Um, and so maybe reconsidering that is another shift in perspective uh, because at the end of the day, like if you're looking for stronger relationships, if you're looking for stronger role models uh, and if you're looking for a sense of belonging in a community, those 10 uh, place of worship tends to be that.
1: So I'll say I think there's two different directions you're taking us here. So first, uh, when people try to help those in these poor communities, besides giving them things, they basically look for some top achievers and they tend to extract them. Take they take them, they help them get into some better school, better job, and they extract them. Um, and they very rarely think about making the neighborhoods better. And they never think of the consequences of taking the best, possibly the best leaders, the best investors, the best models out of those neighborhoods. So one reason why we have a lot of distressed neighborhoods or distressed areas in America is m- much of the best talent year in year out is, are being removed. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't want to deny people their future, but um, every place needs a talent retention strategy. And it also needs a way to make those neighborhoods attractive so people want to live there. That's why mixed income housing is really important. Let's not put all the low income housing in the poor neighborhoods. It makes them less and less attractive and drives the best people out. Um, On the other hand, if you're trying to help society, um, you should always think what's the best ROI. So I, I had two different organizations that took like strategies for helping kids. One of them took the bottom 25%, which was the Baltimore. Another one working in Kentucky took the second 25%, the 26 to 50%, they thought that 25% would have the biggest impact on the whole 100% because they were impacting the group below and the group above. Mm. And so they thought that was the best RI. So I can't say there's one answer here. Thread in Baltimore, Sarah Heminger, she took the worst 25%. And, uh, and 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 basically does miracles to uplift them, and I'm sure that has some impact on the schools and the neighborhoods. And has you want cascading effect, you want spinoffs to what you're doing. So again, that matters. And again, and and as for your latter point, I mean institutions are everything. It's hard to build community without institutions. You can certainly build community without religion. I'm thinking Chevy Chase, part not far from me. I'm thinking of Park Slope in Brooklyn. Um, I'm thinking of places that have a lot of institutions, a lot of social activity and are not known for being religious at all. So it's possible. uh, But for most of us, probably the easiest place to find community is find a house of worship where there is some level of community. I don't think all churches and synagogues and mosques actually build community today. So you have to be careful. Mm. I mean, one of my messages to religious leaders are stop being a consumer product. Stop! I mean, too many, too many houses of worship. They're just a few hours on Sunday morning, and there may be some functional networks around different needs in your life. And they're like everything else in America; they're a consumer product. And I wish houses of worship would be community builders, place-based community builders, and even countercultural, where they went back to what religion was. Religion used to be some thick concept where people had had close relationships with each other, and today that's less and less the case and i think uh religious leaders should put the focus on community building let's not get involved let's not mix religion and politics for example let's focus on strengthening relationships strengthening family strengthening interfamily dynamics bringing people in who are single and maybe lonely thinking about how we make places and neighborhoods better and um and then and, and each of us If we're searching for that, that might be a place to go. Again, it's not for everybody. Everyone is different. And I'm not here to to give, there's no shoulds, I think you said. There's no shoulds, but there's your option, right? One option, and you have a menu of options. And uh, you could volunteer for a nonprofit. You could be on a board of a nonprofit. And that could be a way to get yourself involved deeply with something. So there's a lot of things we can do, but
0: that's one option. Yeah, I love that um the word options and you know you mentioned talent retention strategy the reason that's important is because you know for the people that are able to leave they tend to do that which ultimately leaves that fragile neighborhood with fewer you know working people, fewer role models, fewer mentors and so having a talent retention strategy is one thing to consider and and to your point there could be someone listening to this right now who feels inspired and empowered to become more of a community leader or as you write in your book be the Become the community quarterback, right? You have a chance here to step up as a leader. You have a chance here to um, take on a vision. You have a chance to safeguard the interests of the residents in the community. You have the chance to really promote the community culture. You have a chance to look for representation on different boards, different committees. You can start working with different authorities, whether they are you know, the housing authority, whether they're real estate developers, whether they're in healthcare whether they're, you know, focused on philanthropy, I mean, the reality is that there is a challenge here that, you know, if you can create a well-planned, well-resourced, and well-run community as a quarterback, you have a chance to really uplift a lot of people, drive economic activity, drive, um, you know, higher social mobility and psychological mobility, you know, it's a game changer across the board. Uh, in terms of the overall well-being. So if somebody's listening and they feel empowered to become a community quarterback, I think there's a lot to be said there. And you have a chance right now in a number of communities and neighborhoods to really start making um, some sort of dent, especially if you do it at a very local level and if you start small. So uh,
1: I would say every individual can contribute and do something. And I mentioned alone with a few neighbors Joining or starting some association, so there's different levels. I would say a neighborhood quarterback is an example I use. Um, started with East Lake Foundation in Atlanta. Um, I mean that's that's another even level up. So uh, you have to have some resources. Uh, you probably you 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 need to develop some partnerships. Um, it could be that you look at a series of associations if you have the capacity in, in your neighborhood, and you bring them together. And they combine to put together a neighborhood quarterback or some sort of neighborhood platform. There's many ways to do this. But the neighborhood quarterback, if it had the resources, the management capacity and the network, could work with different parts of the government, could work with philanthropy, could work with um, different nonprofits and could develop a more strategic plan, a bigger picture strategic plan for a neighborhood and then brought all these people to the table where they would work together to develop the plan i mean you would want input from other people in the neighborhood and other leaders in the neighborhood i mean that's 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 the more that's the most ambitious of of i'm giving you different options that's the most ambitious because it really involves strategic thinking uh a uh, lots of meetings and bringing in partners and eventually getting resources and doing much bigger things than one institution normally could do or a set of volunteers could do. But it um, depends what your ambitions are, depends what you think is possible. And um, and it some people have done that, and there's results to show for that.
0: Yeah, exactly. That's definitely a roll-up-the-sleeves, 100% commitment type of role. Uh, but, uh, you know, it, it's the, the options available. So Seth, as we wrap up here, um, definitely want to say thank you for your time, but you know, maybe we can uh, close with how you think about, um, ways to encourage people in terms of how they're thinking about the American dream. I mean, how would you encourage people to rethink what the American dream is based on the conversation we just had? Plus, you know, your own work and research and your own living experience. First, I
1: would say uh, the American dream should not be defined just by material, more money, bigger house, better career. I mean, we all are ambitious, so I would say be ambitious. But I would um, encourage people to think of the dream as a rich social life, uh, a role for family, a role for commitment to community, to society, um, a leadership role in your local. Local, uh, it could be neighborhood or local area. It doesn't always have to be neighborhood. If you're in a rural area, it could be at the county level. If you're in a city, it could be someplace beyond your neighborhood. But I would say uh, leadership today is not sending a check to a far off charity. Uh, Leadership today is not, um, I think politics matter, but it's not screaming for something to do with national politics or national policy. Uh, That's not. or not are not having as your ambition to go far away and do something nationally or globally. Those are wonderful things that maybe that's good for some people. But w- real leadership today is rolling up your sleeves and finding ways to contribute to real people in a real place, uh, trying to solve real problems. And uh that's that place is close to home. Those people are close to home. Those problems are real problems. They're they're not uh, abstract problems. They're not things we can do virtually. There might be a virtual component, a supplement. We want to um, look, it could be our neighborhood. Again, it could be nearby. And there's many ways to do what I'm describing. But I would say, think of citizenship, think of patriotism, think of social engagement in the local. And there's many ways to do this locally, but that, you're going to have a much bigger impact. You're going to have much better relationships. You're going to be dealing with practical problems, not things that divide, but things that unite. Uh, You'll have more friendships. You'll see real results. You will be happier. That's what real leadership is. And I encourage everyone who is watching or listening uh, to uh, find ways to do that. I think your life will be better. Your neighbors, your neighborhood, your cities, our society, our country will be better.
0: That's amazing. I feel fortunate for this conversation. Um. Yeah, you clearly helped us explore some of the tough questions that a lot of people in neighborhoods face today. You helped us learn about how arranging a community is really how we arrange an entire society. We highlighted how, you know, two cities right next to each other can be so different. We talked about how averse people are to joining groups. We talked about the different social conditions that can be improved, the different physical conditions that can be improved um you shared so many ideas uh, initiatives options that we we call them options um uh, that social repairers you know can you know work on and develop and i think um the the biggest takeaway here is feeling empowered that we have the power within us and the resources within us to turn neighborhoods around and communities around and taking some of the earlier words you said turn them into thriving and flourishing places so I really want to say thank you for your time, and I feel fortunate for this opportunity.
1: I'm thrilled that we could have this conversation, and I thank you for being so prepared and and knowing the topic so well. So it's great. And just for anyone who's listening, if I can be helpful, feel free to reach out. Find me on my website, uh, SethKaplan.org. Find me by email. Find me on LinkedIn. I only want to help people find find ways to help strengthen their neighborhood.
0: Beautiful. And uh, the book is called Fragile Neighborhoods: Repairing American Society, One Zip Code at a Time. Thanks, Seth.
1: My pleasure.
0: Thank you.